Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, magicandalchemy.com is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kristen Lizenby, and my co-host, Kate Ballou. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kate Ballou. And I'm Kristen Lizenby. So, inquiring minds want to know, it's mid-May, have the baby goats arrived yet? No, and I'm so impatient. We have our animals in a big grassy field behind our house right now, and I probably go up there at least 10 times a day to check and see if there's a baby goat in the mix, but no luck so far. My pregnant goat, Canella, is so wide right now, too, and you can just tell that she's over it, so send some good thoughts her way. All of the blessings, prayers, good thoughts, wishes to Canella. Love her. Can't wait to meet her. (laughs) I know that you just got back from a little road trip upstate, and I think last time you were up there, snow was still on the ground, so how was it this time? Yeah, we went upstate with Cody's family and stayed at this magical farmhouse that was built in the 1800s. I do love an old farmhouse. I was looking at some of the photos you shared on social media with all the giant trees and green space, and I couldn't help but wonder what you and the Fae were up to. The Fae love the Catskills, and honestly, for me right now, it's all about the dandelions. So there's just something magical about rain in the countryside, too. The air is just so amazing. What are we talking about today? Today, we are talking about a phrase that I imagine many witches have heard at least once or twice in their lives. The phrase, as above, so below. Yes, I can't wait. But before we get into it, I wanted to take a listener question from the Tamed Wild Instagram. Yeah, sounds great. So Natalie messaged asking us how we knew which goddess to call on, which I think is a great question, and I feel like people are asking about deities pretty frequently. So any thoughts? Yeah, I think if we're looking to work with a guide or goddess, it's important to extend an invitation. We can make a ritual out of it if that feels right, or simply vocalize our intention for a few days. If we're directing this invitation at a specific goddess, great. If not, we can keep things open-ended and see who responds. In my experience, usually they'll start leaving clues as to their identity, so we can decide if this is a deity we want to work with. So it's definitely helpful to have some goddess knowledge, but if not, we can always dive into the books. What do you do in your own practice, Kate? I think for me, it's most about essence or the story of that deity. There's always so much reflected in stories, and there are new ways of perspectives and new ways of being. The goddesses that I love the most are the ones that I feel most connected to because of their history, energy, who they protect, etc., 
Like you, I would recommend reading as much as you can about folktales and mythology, and then tracking what resonates really strongly. There's a wonderful archive of story on magicandalchemy.com, and also Women Who Run With the Wolves, which I will just keep recommending. (laughs) Same. When you're reading about goddesses or deities, what sort of tales or story themes speak to you? Goddesses that I leave offerings for are usually the ones that represent elements of the moon, witchcraft, women, dogs, deer, the forest, because those are the spaces and the energy that I feel most at home in and around. Yeah, and it probably varies a bit too, right? Like, Mm -hmm. if we're trying to bring something into being, we might lean into a mother goddess, Or if we want to dive deep into the unconscious, a crone goddess can show us how to navigate the dark. I know for me, I have goddesses I work with on a regular basis, but then some that are more seasonal. Definitely. Listeners, please keep sending us your questions and we'll answer them via direct message, email, or in a future episode of the podcast. Now, Kristen, let's get into the language of the ancients. As above, so below is one of those sayings that has been used many different ways by people with varying spiritual beliefs and ideologies, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to explore the history of this expression. It speaks to people, it makes them think, and reminds us that there is so much more to our life than what we see with the eyes. But before we get into all that, maybe we should first start with where it came from. If you're not super familiar with the history of ancient Egypt, the god Thoth, also sometimes pronounced Tote or Thoth, or his Greek equivalent, Hermes Trismegistus, I'm going to attempt to give an abbreviated but hopefully clear summary and lay a foundation for this discussion. These names are a bit of a mouthful, so bear with me. You're doing great. (laughs) In ancient Egypt, Thoth was the Egyptian god of writing, wisdom, magic, and the moon. He is the patron saint of scribes, lovers of language, and is attributed with creating the hieroglyphics. He is either the husband or the counterpart to Sashat, who is an Egyptian goddess and word witch that holds a special place in my heart. For our listeners who may not know, Sashat is also known as the Mistress of the House of Books, being a deity whose priests oversaw the library in which scrolls of the most important knowledge were assembled and spells were preserved. So really, this is a goddess for you, Kristen. (laughs) Yes, I adore her. The Greeks associated Thoth with the Greek god and messenger Hermes and coined him Thoth the Thrice Great, a.k.a. Hermes Trismegistus. Hermes is believed to be the creator of Hermeticism, a philosophical, spiritual, and alchemical belief system based on his writings. We first see As Above, So Below in the Hermetic text known as the Emerald Tablet, which is part of a larger set of work called The Book of the Secret of Creation. There is much debate over how old these texts are, but most scholars agree that they're somewhere between 2,000 years old and are believed to contain the secrets of the universe. The oldest version of the Emerald Tablet is written in Arabic, although some say this was adapted from an even earlier Greek version. It's been translated into English and many other languages, but 
language is so complex, and there's a good chance that at least some things got lost in translation. But the full passage in the Emerald Tablet says, "'Tis true without error, certain and most true, that which is below is like that which is above, and that which is above is like that which is below, to do the miracle of one only thing." There's also another passage that reads, As above, so below, as within, so without, as the universe, so the soul. This shows us that as above, so below is actually a shortened version of at least a couple longer paragraphs. But what does it mean? During my research, one passage stood out to me that said, quote, The entire Egyptian mythology and cosmology were founded upon the mirror image relationship between all cosmosis. Nature and man reflect each other. Heavens and earth are also self-similar. By observing one relation, you gain knowledge of the reflected whole, which is the meaning of as above, so below. If each cosmos mirrors one above and one beneath, the possibility to increase knowledge is omnidirectional. End quote. Which to me, sort of sounds like Hermes is saying, no matter what direction we decide to go, there's opportunity for growth and learning. Which then makes me think of duality, something we talk about fairly often in witchcraft when making magic and trying to balance the scales, also just by being human. The concept of duality is one of many things that originally appealed to me when I started on my path as a witch. Growing up in a patriarchal society never felt right. Patriarchal belief systems, religious systems, patriarchal standards, whatever it may be, my body, my mind, and my heart just rejected all of that. But then I found the goddess who, unlike the spiritual figures I was used to, was so multifaceted. She was constantly growing and creating and then transforming through many deaths and I just loved her from the start. Even though I think the triple goddess can act as a symbol of duality on her own, it's important to mention her counterpart, the god. And I can't talk about duality without also mentioning the moon and the sun, the seasons, the elements, the heavens and the earth, and our shadow sides in contrast with the persona we typically wear. I'm going to get in way over my head here, <laughs> but maybe you can help me. So. Where do you kind of fall with non-duality then, which is a spiritual concept that I hear as well? And I suppose that on my end, I see a place for both ways of thinking, but it's definitely somewhere that I get a little tripped up. Yeah, this is such a good question and something I think about too. I love the concept of non-duality, or at least there are certain aspects that speak to me. I like the idea of viewing life through a lens of oneness instead of, you know, myself versus the other. But I think duality, at least for me, is sort of a mirror. I find it helpful when working with archetypes or trying to better my understanding of cycles. And I'm not sure this will make sense to you, but the image that comes to mind when I think about duality and non-duality is a puzzle. Like we have all these little pieces, all different colors, shapes, many of them appear to be unrelated, but they actually all fit together. 
These pieces can stand alone, of course, but they're actually designed in a way that we should study and learn from them and hopefully eventually piece them together. I don't know. What do you think? I think this makes a lot of sense, and thank you. I get really Aquarius trapped up in my head over it, and how non-dual of us to accept both, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, are you familiar with the story Coraline at all? Um, on a surface level, but I could probably use a refresher. In Coraline by Neil Gaiman, Coraline crawls through this space in a new house that her family's just moved into to discover the same people and spaces that exist in her reality um, are there except just a bit different. So for example, in this sort of parallel universe, her mother becomes the other mother. And this is how I think about the sort of like reflection over a horizon. So what exists above is, exists below and then to each other, they're both sort of a mirror and a balancing act of each. Yeah, I like that. The idea of, you know, like you said, a parallel universe or an unseen reality. I also can't help but think about that moment in the craft with the dagger. And I know I sent it to you um, over email as we were working on our research, but <laughs> as above and she points the dagger to the sky, so below and she plunges it into the earth. Yes. Love the craft. I feel like I really see this phase enacted when I cast a circle during ritual or spell work, which I don't think we've really ever touched on before. No, I don't think so either. Do you have a specific technique for casting a circle? Yeah, so I learned this from Robin Rose, who was with us last week. Um, but when casting a circle, you call to the different elements and directions to invoke, give thanks, ask for protection, call on blessings, and then to receive energy and support. So there are different variations on this wheel or circle, but the one that I'm most familiar with is calling in the order of east, south, west, north, below, above, center. In this call and ritual, east is tied to the element of air. East brings about wind, ideas, and the mind. South is symbolic of fire, which is inspiration, passion, and the divine spark. We know the West is water, meaning dreams, the heart, intuition, and emotional body. And then the North is earth, which leads us to connect with strength, gratitude, groundedness, and spirit. And then you call on the below, which is darkness, roots, the other world, followed by above, which is expanding freedom and the cosmos. And then finally, you move to the center, which Robin describes as love, great mystery, God, goddess, all that is, and countless other names. So you cast the circle at the beginning of a ritual or spell work, and then again in reverse order to close the circle at the end, and this creates a spiral and a balance of energy and magic. I absolutely love this description. I will take all the Robin Rose and Kate wisdom I can get. read about Hermes, Hermeticism, and some of the theories behind As Above, So Below, the more I realized how many other philosophers and inventors, you know, the people considered to have wise minds, so to speak, were influenced by these writings. Isaac Newton is probably one of the most famous admirers of the Emerald Tablet. 
He wrote rather extensively on the laws of nature, and I think realized that none of what he was discovering was new, although he was able to rephrase things, show them in a new light, and use them to support and alchemize his creations. This reminds me of the alchemists turning lead into gold. Yes, and also the poets. This phrase is believed to have influenced William Blake, also the writer and psychic Rudolf Steiner, who, side note, if you've never read Rudolf Steiner, what are you waiting for? He's amazing. Adding him to my list. (laughs) And isn't there just something so alchemical about poetry, too? Like, it transmutes emotions and feelings into something new. Yes, I couldn't agree more. There's this quote by writer William Gass that I think about often, and it says, The true alchemists do not change lead into gold. They change the world into words. I think we could also flip that and say that they turn words into worlds. Wow, this is stunning. So before I even finished this episode, I went online, did some research, and ordered a used copy of a translated emerald tablet because after seeing how many people were influenced by it, I obviously wanted to know more. And I was a little hesitant because, you know, even reading Rudolf Steiner's books, which were written about a hundred years ago, can be tricky. And often I will reread chapters because it can kind of go in one ear and out the other the first time, not only because the context is so deep, but also because our language has evolved. It's not as bad as reading Shakespeare, but it definitely takes some brain power and patience. But then I saw a quote from Hermes about the Emerald Tablet that said, Those who read my writings will think them to be quite simply and clearly written, but those who hold opposite principles to start with will say that the style is obscure and conceals the meaning. So it sounds like it's definitely a requirement to go in with an open mind, which is a good idea anyway whenever we read something new or want to challenge what we think we know. Thank you so much for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kate Ballou and Kristen Lizenby. You can find us online at k8ballou and at eastandalchemy. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at tamedwild or on the blog magicandalchemy.com. Join us for next week's episode where we sit down with Shelby Bundy, the creator, owner, and head witch in charge of Tamed Wild and Magic and Alchemy. Just a reminder that Magic and Alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mode it be or something better. Until next time.